Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I think my, my favourite is related to uh, the only automobile that was aboard the Titanic. So that was a, a 1912 Renault type CB Coupe de Ville. It was owned by a guy called William Carter from Pennsylvania. So he purchased the Renault in Paris, I believe, and was planning on taking it back to New York with him. And he survived and claimed £3,100 for the car. This became the first ever claim for a vehicle damaged in a collision with an iceberg. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Paul Miller and we will be discussing the sinking of the Titanic and its various insurance consequences. This is actually Paul's second time on the podcast. His first concentrated on recruitment because he works for the insurance recruiters HFG. Uh, but that podcast also touched upon Paul's other life as an insurance historian. And if you don't already follow Paul on LinkedIn, then please connect with him immediately because he posts lots of stories about insurance and particularly Lloyd's uh, that you will not find anywhere else. Um, and these posts include occasional stories about the, the Titanic, uh, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Paul, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. In our first podcast, you, you explained how you ended up in, in insurance. But what was it that attracted you to insurance history? Initially, I've, I've always had an interest in, in history and uh, my family... A lot of the, the, the men in my family were involved in, in fighting in the Second World War at various battles. And, and my granddad was, was at D-Day, at the D-Day landings. And I was reading a book once. I was, I was trying to find out a bit more about D-Day. And I was reading the book and stumbled across Major Robert Kiln, who went on to set up Kiln syndicates and now Tokyo Marine Kiln, obviously. And I found, start, read about him, learned his story. It's very interesting. Then I started to read about the Battle of Britain and found two or three underwriters that were the members of the few and fought up in the battle and it just sort of sparked my interest in it a little bit really so I started to read more around the war and people at war and Lloyd's that have been involved in that then I looked at the war memorial and then I looked into a few of the people there and it just led me off into different directions and and it occurred to me that a few different books that I'd read had referenced Lloyd's and referenced people that had worked there and it just seemed like there were a lot of fascinating characters that, that were involved in the market so it just sparked my interest really. Right, so let's move on to the Titanic then. Um, and uh, obviously most listeners will know, know the basic story, uh, which is that on, on 10th of April, 1912, uh, the largest passenger liner in the world, in fact, I think it might have been the largest ship in the world um, at the time, uh, the Titanic, or I suppose we should be accurate on this because we're, we're both nerds. Um, it's the, the, the Royal Mail ship or RMS Titanic. Um, it sets out on its maiden voyage to New York uh, but just before midnight on 14th of, of April, uh, it hits an iceberg. And then in the early hours of the 15th of, of April, uh, it tragically sinks with a loss of uh, of over 1,500 lives. And I, I should at this point apologise to anyone who's about to watch the film uh, for that obvious spoiler. Um, but so let, let's let's begin at the beginning. Could you kind of let us know what, what the origins of the Titanic? How did, how did it come about? So the, the idea of, uh, for building Titanic was born one evening in 1907 at the London home of Lord Pirrie. So he was the head of the Belfast shipbuilding company, Harland and Wolfe, and his dinner guest was White Star Line director, J. Bruce Ismay. So in the early 1900s, the White Star Line was perceived as the poor cousin to its main rival, the Cunard Lines. So over dinner, Ismay told Lord Pirrie that he wanted to find a way to compete with Cunard's newer, faster ships, 
the Mauritania and the Lusitania. Knowing they couldn't build a faster ship, Tyrionese May began planning a series of bigger and more luxurious vessels, the most elegant ships the world had ever seen, as they described them. The ships will be named the Olympic, the Titanic and the Gigantic. Listeners will need to remember the name Olympic because we're going to mention that again a bit later on. And where, where was Titanic actually constructed then? So it, was, it, it began construction within six months of that conversation and, and began at the Highland and Wolf shipyard, which is, uh, was housed on the River Lagan in Belfast. Um, the Olympic and the Titanic were built at the same time. So... One of the things as a recruiter I found quite interesting is that the, the working conditions for those building the Titanic and the Olympic didn't sound. I presume they were not good. <laughs> no, not, not really. So there were, there were 15,000 workers um, to build the two ships and they arrived at six o'clock every day at Sunday and they clocked out at 5.30 in the afternoon. So working conditions um, meant that they took a short breakfast break at 8.30 a.m., a lunch break at one o'clock. Each man was only allowed a certain number of trips to the toilet and was actually timed in the process. Their pay averaged two English pounds per week, and it was deducted if they were ever late for work or if they damaged company tools or equipment or broke any shipyard rules. The annual leave entitlement was that everyone received one week off in the summer and two days off at Christmas and Easter. Yeah, it's not generous, is it, really? No. It's, 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 no. Not, it's not an attractive package. Um, I'm not sure it's stuck up now. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually during this construction phase that uh, the t- Titanic had its first brush uh, with insurance because uh, during the construction, um, eight or nine um, shipbuilders died, as I understand it, and uh, 28 others were severely injured, so presumably lost limbs or, or, or worse. Um, and uh, kind of this is sorry, this is the legal bit now for kind of the, the lawyers who are listening. Um, under the Workmen's Compensation Act uh, 1906, Harland and Wolfe would have been obliged to provide uh, compensation um, for those employees, uh, up to uh, £300 for employees who were killed, um, and that's 30000 in today's money. And in fact, I should say, kind of throughout this podcast, if we don't mention it, uh, in pounds, you need to times it by about 100 to get to the, the, the today's value. And in dollars, uh, you times it by about 30 um, to get to today's value. Um, so, yeah, so, so 300 quid for employees who were killed and, and, and 50% of salary, which, as you're saying, was only kind of two pounds a week um, for those who are disabled and unable to work. Um, do we know whether Harland and Wolf would have been insured for that? I, I don't have a definite answer on this. I've looked into it, but it doesn't seem to have been reported anywhere. Um, but... Highlander Wolf weren't obliged to insure us. Compulsory insurance only came around in 1934. And even then, it was only for coal miners. They may well have done, though, because insurance had been available by them for about 20 years. However, um, as you mentioned, compensation, there was a compensation payment of £4,849 and three shillings. And that was paid to those injured during the Titanic's construction. I actually found quite a, a sad news report, actually, in a Belfast newspaper. It's from 13th of June, 1911, and it detailed the death of one of the shipbuilders. And it read, yesterday afternoon, just before the ending of work, Robert Murphy, when employed on the Titanic, missed his hold and fell from one of the upper decks, a distance of 50 feet. Assistance was immediately forthcoming, and the injured man was conveyed in the ambulance to the Royal Victoria Hospital. In that institution, it was discovered that he was suffering from a fracture to the base of the skull. Recovery from the first was quite hopeless, and he expired some time after admission. What makes the accident a particularly sad one is the fact that the son of the deceased man, Robert Murphy, was fatally injured some time ago when working on the Olympic. 
Yeah, no, that I mean that is grim, isn't it? But I guess it's it was just part and parcel with kind of that that era, wasn't it? I mean, the, the we know that isn't bad. Kingdom Brunel managed to get through quite a lot of his employees as well. That's when right. He was, when engineering works and whatever. So yeah, grim, grim, very sad, very sad. And what do we know about the the insurance arrangements for Titanic itself? Do we have much information about that? Yeah, I've got I've got a little. So it was on the. Willis Faber and Co were the broker, um, and on 9th of January 1912, they, they went into the underwriting room at Lloyd's to ensure both the Titanic and her sister ship, the Olympic, on behalf of the White Star Line. As you can imagine, the unsinkable ship was a prestigious risk, with cover for the hull alone standing at one million. The first signature to appear on the underwriting slip was that of Richard Jones of Commercial Union, who agreed to accept up to £75,000 each on the hull and machinery, of both Titanic and her sister ship, the Olympic. This was a high share of risk accepted on the two vessels and was matched only by three of the other 69 underwriters that signed the slip. So there were numerous Lloyd syndicates that put their names on the slip, covering amounts ranging from £10,000 through to 75000 Willis were able to negotiate a favourable premium for the unsinkable vessel of just £7,500. The hull of the Titanic was insured in several ways against the loss of the ship, against damage caused by the ship to a second ship or object through a collision or allision, and for third-party damages. The White Star Line company carried liability for the first £150,000, and that just meant that if the ship was damaged, underwriters would not have been called upon if the damage was below that amount. The ship carried cargo with a total of $420,000, all of which was underwritten by Lloyd Syndicates. Cargo for insurance purposes uh, consisted of specie, passengers' luggage, and so on. It also covered mail that was to be transported, because as previously mentioned, the Titanic was a postal ship, effectively a floating post office that had been commissioned to transport and handle mail from the Royal Mail. And uh, I, I can't leave this without asking you what elision means. You, you, said, <laughs> you, said, you said collision or allision. And That's right. I have no idea what that means. It's a great word, isn't it? It's... Uh, <laughs> So a collision is two moving ships that, that hit one another, and an allision is a moving ship that is, hits one that's stationary. Ah, every yeah. day is school day. Every day there is school day. Um, <laughs> now, now the, the, the construction of Titanic was all a bit last minute, uh, in that the, the fitting out um, was only completed on the 2nd of April uh, 1912, so just eight days before it was due to sail. It then had some very speedy sea trials uh, zooming around the Irish Sea, um, before scooting off to Southampton, where it picked up its its, its crew and, and passengers, um, the Titanic then sailed from there to Cherbourg, uh, Cherbourg in in northern France, where it picked up some passengers and put down others, um, and uh, and then it went on to Queenstown in Ireland to, to once again to pick up some more passengers um, before it set off across the Atlantic. So, it, who was on board? How much do we know about the, the people who are actually on board the Titanic? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of information about the, the passengers. There were 1,317 passengers, and that was split. There were 324 in first class, 284 in second, and 709 in third class. Additionally, there were a further 905 crew. So the, the first class passengers were, were really the richest and most important people of the time. There was one first class passenger, a chap called Christopher Head. He was born in Stoke Newington on Christmas Day, 1869, and his father was a successful marine underwriter at Lloyd's and spent 50 years in the market. His father was described as one of the best-liked and most respected men at Lloyd's when he passed away in 1905. 
And Christopher was, like his father, a very well-respected character amongst the maritime insurance community. He was described as mild and unassuming. One, uh, one record that I read described him as one of the most attractive of men. For wherever he went, he left a sense of serenity and security. Oh, that's so nice, isn't it? Yeah. Not like me. <laughs> in, the, uh, in, the, in the year of his father's death, Christopher took over um, at Henry Head & Co., his father's firm, and was made a director and worked as a marine broker and underwriter. He spent the years leading up to 1912 travelling back and forth to New York on business. And he'd travel on a different vessel each time, aiming to become better at his job by doing so. And when a, another trip was required, he uh, excitedly paid £42 for a first-class cabin on the Titanic, a ship that he was actually involved in insuring himself. When the ship went down, Christopher helped women and children climb onto lifeboats, knowing that his own death was inevitable. And as news of the ship's loss filtered through to the room, his anxious colleagues asked whoever they could for news of Mr Head's. The day after the loss, an announcement was made by Lloyds. As his name does not appear among the list of the saved, it is to be feared he has gone down with the vessel. Mr Head was well-known and much respected by the marine insurance community, and his tragic death in the prime of his life is deeply lamented. Later emerged, actually, that before he embarked on his journey, Christopher Head took out a £25,000 policy against ocean accidents, at Lloyd's for his trip on the Titanic, and that precaution left his widow very well provided for. In his will, he also left £500 to the Lloyd's Benevolent Fund, a charity that provides support to those in need who have worked in the Lloyd's community. Yeah, so I mean, the, the £25,000 life insurance policy, as, as we mentioned earlier on, your times that by 100, and that's two and a half million yeah, today's money. Exactly, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, a very sensible and prudent man who yeah. thought of others. Nice fella. Indeed. Titanic sank. Um, as we all know, um, in the early hours of, of 15th of April. Um, and 710 survivors were, were picked up by the RMS Carpathia uh, and were then taken on to New York. So, I, I mean, how did the news of the, the sinking filter its way through to Lloyd's and, and, and what was the reaction within Lloyd's? It's, it, it's interesting because I think the story is relatively well known around how the, the information was communicated. At the, the time of the disaster, the market was still in the early stages of using wireless telegraphy as in, to communicate with ships at sea. And Lloyd's was a significant contributor to the new technology, and that, along with Marconi, set up signal stations from Cornwall to Canada so that vessels crossing the Atlantic could communicate with lands. The Lloyd's signal station in Halifax, Nova Scotia, was called Cape Race, and that was the first to hear the news that the ship was sinking. Other signals issued conflicting reports resulting in confusion. There was um, a type of insurance policy at the time called overdue insurance. It's now largely obsolete because of advances in technology, but it was an early form of reinsurance bought by an insurer when a ship was late arriving at her destination port. Overdue insurance for the Titanic was quickly organised and famously written on the doorstep of Lloyd's. But the underwriting room, to answer your question, was initially quiet with the Times writing the following day. During the morning, the floor was quite deserted and no business was done as everybody was anxiously awaiting tidings of the great liner. But as hours progressed, things definitely became more chaotic. There's a, an illustration called The Awful News at Lloyd's that shows the room as confirmed news of the loss came through. It shows a young boy trying to deliver a telegram to a waiter, but he's unable to move for underwriters and brokers trying to read the paper before he passes it on. And this really is how it's been described by many, a frantic and worried place. And how quickly were the insurance payments actually made? So there's, a, there's an article in the 
from the New York Times. It was published in April 28, 1912. So that's about two weeks after the ship went down. And it wrote about insurance issues and claims processing for the Titanic. It stated that almost every insurance obligation had been met. And according to the article, property losses came to $9.42 million, $8 million for the ship, $420,000 for cargo, and $1 million for personal property. Quite remarkably, really, despite the volume of claims, all were paid within 30 days. So to put this into perspective, it amounted to just under 15% of the total amount paid out by Lloyds on all marine claims in 1912. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, it was a big loss, and and 30 days is... Pretty impressive under any circumstances. Yeah. At this point, Paul, we should mention that uh, almost inevitably uh, there is a conspiracy theory um, around the sinking of, of, of the, the, the Titanic. Um, and that there's a, a theory that it was a massive insurance fraud. Um, do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, sure. It's, <laughs> you know, it seems whenever there's a disaster, there's often a conspiracy theory based around the insurance fraud that comes off the back of it. I've read some recently about the Marie Celeste and, and 9-11. Um, but yes, there, there is also a theory about the Titanic that tells us the ship didn't actually sink. It said that the disaster was the result of an insurance scam by the International Mercantile Marine Company, which owned the White Star Line. So according to the theory, the trouble started when the Olympic crashed into a warship in 1911 and was blamed for the accident in an inquiry. As a result, the White Star Line was unable to receive an insurance payout. So the White Star Line supposedly fixed up the Olympic as best it could and masqueraded it as the Titanic. By allowing the wounded ship to continue on under an assumed name, the company could collect the insurance payment when it sunk. So the theory is that the two nameplates were switched and it was actually the Olympic that sunk. I guess the, the obvious thing to, to question about this is the intent, and the, the intent with it wasn't to kill anybody on board. If their plan had gone off without a hitch, the ship would have sunk slowly and close to another ship that could have subsequently rescued the crew and passengers. He said it went wrong when the liner ended up accidentally running over a darkened rescue ship, which passengers and crew members would later mistake for an iceberg. So I looked into this a little bit, and despite the theory, there's nothing to confirm this version of events. In fact, there's a number of items that have been pulled from the wreck of the Titanic, and they bear the construction number 401. The Olympics construction number, on the other hand, was 400. Yeah, I so, there doesn't seem to be much weight to it. No, exactly. It's, it's, an, it's an enjoyable theory, but there's also yeah. there's also as I was reading up about it, you know, the fact that the, the Titanic and Olympic were not identical twins. That's right. That there were there were construction differences as well. They, they obviously looked pretty similar, but there were there were construction differences. So yeah, yeah so exactly. It, it, uh, it, it is a theory without much evidence. I think most are, aren't they? I think it's uh, probably the, the, the politest way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the crew, um, of whom there were around 900. Um, actually, over 500 of whom who died were, were based in, in Southampton. So, you know, huge loss to, to a single city. Um, now, the crews were employees of the White Star Line, so they w- would have received compensation in the way which we discussed earlier. Um, in connection with the Harland and Wolf employees. But, I mean, once again, do we know whether White Star was insured for, for that, for the compensation payments to, to those who died, that their employees who died on board? So there, there are a few stories that kind of answer your question. The, the White Star Line, after the sinking, the White Star Line was, was tight-lipped and, and not making any announcements. When surviving crew members arrived in New York, the line tried to hustle them back to England without letting any outsiders talk to them. And in July 1912, the company said it had paid no claims thus far and would contest any future action seeking damages 
including any actions taken by crew. There's a, a woman named Eileen Wilson, and she spoke to the BBC a few years ago about her grandfather, John Edward Pusey, and he was a steward on the Titanic who lost his life. He, he left a wife and two sons. She explained that his wife was given a few sovereigns, and that was it. They, they were left in poverty. Perhaps the most poignant story is related to that for the family of the musicians who were still playing their instruments when the ship went down. Because they'd been hired by an outside contractor, White Star deemed them passengers rather than employees, which meant their dependents were not even entitled to workmen's compensation. Presumably, I mean, you mentioned the, the Lloyd's underwriter who did have uh, life insurance, but presumably the vast majority of passengers had, had no form of insurance at all, um, life insurance or, or, or even travel insurance, because first travel insurance policy was sold in, in 1864 by, surprise, surprise, Travelers Insurance uh, in America. Um, but, you know, in, in 1912, travel insurance didn't really exist, did it? And I mean, what sort of insurance policies, if any, were used by the passengers on board? No, you're right. There, there weren't many, but the majority were held by passengers in, in first class cabins. The, the sinking of the Titanic actually led to some of the largest insurance payouts in history. So, for example, the beneficiaries of, of John B. Thayer, who was a business magnate, they received a, an accident insurance payout of $120,000, which is around $3 million today. His widow received a $50,000 life insurance payout. Strangely, his, uh, his wife died on the same day, about 32 years later, on April 15th, 1944. But according to another article from 1912, um, Hubert F. Caffey, a chap from North Dakota, held the largest life insurance policy of all those who perished. And his beneficiaries received $146,750. And that's about $4 million, just under today. So many of the wealthy passengers have also insured their personal belongings at, at Lloyd's, mainly jewellery. Um, so a lot of diamonds and, and pearls insured in the market. But most personal claims were made directly to the White Star Line. So many claims were made for loss of cargo and of belongings and for personal injury. The property claims ranged from eight shillings and six pence for Edwina Trout's marmalade maker to over $177,000 in total for Charlotte Cardez's baggage. That's, that's, quite a sum, that's quite a sum baggage. Yeah. And also to take a marmalade maker with you to New York is a bit strange, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You never know whether you can get one in New York. So there was another claimant, a lady called Anna Sophia Soblom, and she was a passenger, passenger who was fortunate enough to make out alive. But... She was thrown off the deck on, and, and into one of the lifeboats as the ship sank. She'd spent most of her time on, in the ship in her bunk due to seasickness. And unfortunately, one of the crew members also jumped onto a lifeboat and landed on her head. And that left her with extensive head and spinal injuries. Grief. And, and uh, what sort of claims in total are we talking about? The survivors of the tragedy and, and the families of those killed filed claims totaling around $16 million dollars. However, the White Star Line contested the claims, alleging there was a clause within the passenger tickets which absolved them of liability. And additionally, they stated that circumstances leading to the accident were unforeseeable. Eventually, the plaintiffs and defendants settled for a total sum of only $664,000 on December 17, 1915. This wasn't a substantial amount of money, given the fact it was meant to be shared amongst all survivors and families of those killed in the disaster. No, that's about $430 per person, isn't it? Or what's that? $12,000 each in today's money, which is, well, it's pitiful, really, isn't it? Anyway, for the final bit of this podcast, let's move on to the film, uh, Titanic, 
from 1997, which was directed by James Cameron and which starred Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, the film was the most expensive film ever made at the time, and it cost uh, around $200 million, uh, which by a bizarre coincidence is almost exactly the same uh, in real terms as the original cost of constructing the Titanic itself. Now, um, kind of, uh, we're talking about the insurance side of it, and, and, and did the researchers rely upon the insurance claims to ensure the accuracy of the film in any way? Yeah, very much so. So the claims forms were read, costumes were created, for example, from details given, and it transpired from some of the insurance claims that a few passengers also took dogs with them on their journey. And, and if you look out in the film at some point, you can see a dog walking around on deck. But I think my, my favourite is related to uh, the only automobile that was, was aboard the Titanic. So that was a, a 1912 Renault type CB Coupe de Ville. It was owned by a guy called William Carter from Pennsylvania, and he was the heir to a coal and iron fortune. So he purchased the Renault in Paris, I believe, and was planning on taking it back to New York with him. And he survived and claimed £3,100 for the car. This became the first ever claim for a vehicle damaged in a collision with an iceberg. But to go back to the film, that same model of car can be seen hoisted onto the ship at the beginning of it. And also the Renault played a key role in the scene later in the movie when Jack and Rose consummate their relationship in the backseat of it. All because insurers read an insurance claim. Ah, okay. And, and that, that, that car had a very, very bad condensation problem, as I recall from, from the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. So, very, very bad indeed. Um, kind of, uh, I mean, we're coming to, to the end uh, of, of the podcast, but at this point, I want you to do a little advert for, because you're producing a, a sort of an insurance history app. Yes. Um, aren't you? Which is hopefully going to be kind of available to the, to the wider world very shortly. Do you, do you want to talk to us about that briefly? Yeah, sure. So I am. Um, a lot of people say to me, it's, it's about the, the things that I put on LinkedIn that they've not seen it anywhere else and ask where I find it. So I think there are a lot of people out there that would be quite interested to read more of the history. And I think one of the challenging things with LinkedIn is that you, you can only really see people's most recent posts unless you spend all day scrolling through. So I came up with the idea of putting an app together with a, a couple of purposes, really. So it was stories related to insurance history, similar to those that I post on LinkedIn, but there'll be others on it that, that don't go onto LinkedIn just because there's, there are so many. Um, there'll also be a section on it where there will be people giving advice to, to younger people joining the insurance market. So they're writing articles and tips on how they can become better at their job. A section where you can look into insurance podcasts, oh, such as this great. one. So there'll be... <laughs> a listing for, for various different insurance podcasts on there as well. So I guess to, to summarise it, it's it's more of a light-hearted look at the profession that people work in and will give a sort of a greater understanding of the history of the market and what, what it's achieved. And, and when's that going to be out, do you think? So I was hoping it would be out now, but um, I've pretty much finished it. So I would suggest the first week of November it will definitely be out by then. Brilliant. Okay, well, I look forward to that. Um, and and we'll, we'll you'll publicise that on LinkedIn, no doubt, and and I'll circulate that on my LinkedIn account as well. So thanks very much. That'd be great. Thank you. Um, and and to finish with, um, please could you give us kind of one final juicy nugget about uh, insurance and Titanic? Yeah, sure. So um, Harry Winston, the jeweller, is many many links with Lloyd's. He's a, a fascinating guy. He's, in fact, he um, from about nineteen. 40s onwards wasn't allowed to have his photograph taken because of the terms of his Lloyd's policy 
because he was such a risk for being kidnapped or for people stealing jewels from him. Anyhow, he was asked to create a necklace, a replica of the Heart of the Ocean necklace that you saw in the, the film that you just mentioned. So he made that and he used a 15 carat blue diamonds. So it was worn by Gloria Stewart at the Academy Awards in 1998, but before doing so was insured at Lloyd's for $26 million. It remains the highest insured piece of jewellery worn to an Oscars ceremony. There is no better way to finish this podcast. That's brilliant. Thanks, Paul. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. I hope everyone's learned a little bit more about the Titanic and uh, its insurance links. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.